0: Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We're talking about energy and, of course, the high price of gasoline and home heating fuel. And uh, if you think that uh, winter is over, uh, look at a national weather map. As uh, Laurie Turnbull told us, uh, for, she's from Calgary this morning. It's snowing out in Alberta, and uh, they're expecting a major winter storm in Manitoba. Not to suggest that it's going to happen in southern Ontario, but, you know, we still have to be cognizant of, of energy and uh, the Prime Minister was out on the West Coast uh, the other day in British Columbia as uh, he and three of his senior federal ministers uh, fanned out across the province and the Yukon to spread the word about the green initiatives that they put into last uh, week's budget. Beth Lighton has details. Trudeau is in Victoria, starting the day with an announcement about electric vehicle infrastructure to support his Liberal government's plans for the green economy and its ambitious zero-emission goals over the next decade. Meanwhile, International Development Minister Harjit Sejan talks clean economy in Kelowna, while in Yukon, Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson discusses a federal clean energy partnership with the territory and a local First Nation. The day's flurry of appearances also includes Richmond, as another BCMP, Federal Fisheries Minister Joyce Murray, makes an infrastructure announcement there Beth Layton, the Canadian press so and what they talked about during the budget of course it was was alternative fuels I mean you know fossil fuels uh, are still there we get that but I mean we need to be moving off of those and again there's a pretty strong consensus about that and there's talk about wind and there's talk about solar energy uh, not a whole lot of talk uh, about nuclear energy though and, and I think that's somewhat problematic uh, he did mention it. The Prime Minister did mention it and said it's it's on the table, but uh, to, how, to what extent? To uh, talk about this, we're pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Chris Kiefer, who is the president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy. Uh, doctor, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: With the spiraling costs that we're getting right now of gasoline and home heating fuel uh, and, and basically, you know, electricity, uh, why haven't we had more discussion about nuclear energy?
1: It's an interesting question. Uh, I was encouraged, you know, the prime minister was asked about the role of nuclear um, and the question had to do with this uh, you know, idea around building out a battery electric vehicle fleet. We know that we're going to need to double or even triple our grid in order to accommodate those vehicles. You know, it's, it's easy to build cars. What's hard is to build up the infrastructure um, in order to charge those vehicles. You know, across Canada, to double our grid, we need the equivalent of 113 site C dams or 96 large candy reactors we've gotten pretty bad at building large infrastructure Um, and so I think it's much easier to talk about the the kind of end user device like the car um, but we're avoiding the much more difficult questions about how on earth we're actually going to replace fossil fuels one-to-one in order to build a clean energy future
0: well and I'm glad you brought that up because we've talked about this on the program in the past and it's you're right it's not even part of the discussion you know, bravo to the auto manufacturers, you know, they've, they finally clued in EVs are, are what we need to be doing, and they're making huge investments in that. But we haven't talked about charging them, have we, and the impact that's going to have on the grid.
1: Oh, and I mean, we're, as a country, really freeloading off of the infrastructure that our ancestors built, you know, the enormous hydro dams in Quebec and D.C., um, you know, throughout this country. Um, but we have this, you know, forgive the pun, but it's a generational challenge um, to build the the clean energy infrastructure to get us off fossil fuels. You know, we don't use fossil fuels because we are sociopathic as a species or because we hate the environment. The fact is that they provide vital services to our civilization. You know, they underpin um, everything from fertilizer to steel to cement, the, ver- the very kind of lifeblood of what makes our, our civilization. And it's no small challenge to replace those. And what we need to do is not think about just replacing fossil fuels but replacing fossil fuel services. And what are those services? Those are you know dispatchability, ultra reliability, versatility, transportability. And we need to do it with a source that's even better. And nuclear is what offers us that. And it is a demonstrable proven tool for replacing fossil fuel services. So in Ontario, many people don't know this, but we achieved North America's greatest greenhouse gas reduction um, by replacing coal with nuclear. 90% yeah. of the energy required to accomplish that enormous feat uh, was done by nuclear energy. So we have an evidence-based model. You know, the other thing is, we've, as I was saying before, we've gotten bad at building large infrastructure. Um, you know, Site C, Muskrat Falls went, you know, significantly over budget. Um, we need to really be learning best practices from around the world and relearning how to do what our ancestors did um, so well, because it's it's just vital that that we we are able to to do this kind of large tasks again.
0: Let's talk about some of the, uh, well, maybe I'm going to refer them as myths uh, about nuclear. And one of them, of course, is while it's not really safe. I don't know. They go and think back to, to things like Chernobyl and, and, God forbid, Three Mile Island and places of that. But it, could we talk about the elements of safety and, and just how useful and how used uh, nuclear power has been on a global basis?
1: Sure. I mean, you know, every year nuclear energy displaces two uh, gigatons of CO two. That's one twenty fifth of all the emissions that we put out as a species. And, you know, in the history of civilian nuclear energy, there's not been a single death associated with radiation outside of the Soviet Union. You mentioned Chernobyl, um, and that really was a disaster, Um, you know, and and there were deaths associated with radiation from that old reactor design and really the, the horrible human factors that existed within Soviet culture. Um, But, you know, Fukushima, for instance, that was the meltdown of four reactors Mm -hmm. simultaneously, the world's fourth largest earthquake ever mentioned, um, you know, in the tidal wave. 20,000 people died, but that was as a result of the flooding, um, you know, traumatic injuries from the earthquake itself and decimation of infrastructure. But, you know, the science is quite clear in this. The UN Scientific Committee on the Effects of Atomic Radiation says that they do not anticipate a single uh, radiation related death. Similarly, Three Mile Island, you know, I'm an emergency physician. I actually uh, am the source of uh, most of the artificial radiation that the average Canadian will get because I do CT scans and x-rays uh, on people. The maximum dose that any, anyone from the general public got from the Three Mile Island incident was the equivalent of one chest x-ray. So you know, I, I make the analogy a lot to aviation and we don't give a second thought to flying at 30,000 feet in a pressurized metal tube you know, through the sky. Um, and that's because the aviation industry has learned from the incidents that have occurred over time um, and has dramatically improved um, their, their safety culture and the technology. And the same thing has happened with nuclear, except that the total lives lost in the history of civilian nuclear energy is the equivalent of probably one airliner that's gone down. Um, so, you know, unfortunately, we've made um, a bit of a mountain out of a molehill in terms of the safety argument. It's something that humans are, are you know, very capable of at engineering and at, at problem solving over time. And iteratively, we've become, you know, a very astute at running our power plants. In Canada, for instance, in the 70 years of our Candu fleet, there's not been a single, you know, radiation induced uh, death or something like that. So um, we need to look at the scale of the problems. Climate change is, is absolutely massive. People are dying in wildfires and heat waves. Um, and we need to, you know, be adults and, and weigh the risks and make the hard choices that are necessary to get through this.
0: Why did it fall off everybody's radar? Excuse the the pun. It it just seemed like, you know, there was a a time, I mean, you know, the Pickering plant and and the Bruce Power plants and things of this nature, and we just here in Ontario took it for granted that, yes, we've got it. Uh, I know there are huge maintenance costs if you let things go, whether you're talking about your car or a nuclear plant. Uh, It seemed as if governments just kind of took it for granted and forgot about it.
1: Well, I mean, that's that's true and it isn't. Canada's largest infrastructure project, uh, $26 billion, are being spent on refurbishing most of our can fleet, the reactors at Darlington and Bruce, which will give us another 40 years of carbon-free power. And nuclear is the second cheapest source of electricity in our grid after hydro, far cheaper than wind, solar, or gas, for instance. You mentioned Pickering, and this is a real tragedy. Um, we are in 2024 or 2025 going to lose an enormous chunk of Ontario's clean energy generation. And this is going to have impacts uh, in Ontario where it's going to be replaced by natural gas that will emit the equivalent of eight megatons of CO2. Or, you know, to make that understandable to your listeners, the equivalent of eight million transatlantic flights every year of emissions are going to be added to the grid. But for Canada, more broadly, Um, The closure of that single plant and the replacement of its massive output with natural gas is going to erase all of the progress uh, in terms of national emission reductions that we've made since 2005. It's very important to understand that the Ontario coal phase, that greatest greenhouse gas reduction in North American history, powered by nuclear, is what offset the emissions rise in Alberta. You know, Canada amongst OECD nations has not done very much. We're, we're really back of the pack in terms of emissions reductions. And we're about to lose all that because we've, we're making this decision not to refurbish um, uh, these plants. And, you know, these refurbishments and, and can do nuclear in general really are the ultimate economic stimulus. Um, independent economic analysis has shown that for every dollar that we spend in candu nuclear, we get a dollar forty back in GDP. And that's because we... Control and contain ninety six percent of the nuclear supply chain, right from the mining to the fuel fabrication to the power plants themselves. So, at a time when we we need to act quickly, we need to spend our resources wisely, and we need to really safeguard the Canadian economy as we recover from uh, the COVID pandemic. Um, you know, bold a bold program coming from you know at the federal and the provincial level to at least not let our nuclear plants like Pickering um, be shut down, but also to start building um that generational challenge that infrastructure that's going to be required to charge these you know battery electric vehicles because it's easy to make cars it's not easy to make power plants we need a government that takes that seriously and really starts planning that out how do we play catch up then you know that's a good question it's 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 happening around the world i will say that you know uh up until you know two or three years ago many countries around the world were phasing out their nuclear fleets um that there wasn't really a great justification for that it was almost just sort of a, a cultural thing that was happening particularly in europe there's been a real about face there you know the boris johnson government in the uk just announced um, that they're going to be building eight new large reactors and they're actually starting um, uh, a, a crown corporation called great british nuclear to help facilitate that to streamline the reg- the, the approval processes the site locations and the financing of these projects um, in order to bring a nuclear plan online every year instead of every decade um, so I think we have a lot to learn from that model. Um, We should be paying careful attention to that. But also in France, there was a plan to scale their nuclear back from 75% of their grid to 50%. Um, They have reversed that. They're maintaining their fleet and they're gonna be adding 14 new large reactors. And so, you know, this is mature politics. This is politics that's recognizing um, the scale of the challenge that we face and the the challenge and scale of electrification and the need to, to add this capacity.
0: I guess it's somewhat of a rhetorical question, but you have to ask yourself, and when are governments going to learn? I mean, first of all, you've talked about our dependency on, on fossil fuels, and I think there's a pretty strong consensus. Yeah, we've got to do something about that, and nuclear has to be part of the solution. But there's a political end to this, too. I mean, as long as we're going to be relying on fossil fuels, uh, and we've seen this happen time and time again, uh, we can be held hostage, as, as you know, parts of Europe are right now, by, by Putin and what's going on here. I mean. It's, it's it's seemingly still 19th century thinking by some governments here, as opposed to looking for long-term solutions here. And I get your point. Uh, you know, you can't put one of these plans together in a month and a half. It takes time, but there has to be a, a, a commitment by government to say this is what we're going to do, doesn't there?
1: Well, I mean, it's it's very important that you mentioned sort of the energy disaster that Europe has inflicted upon itself. and. You know the fact that, German, uh, that Germany and the EU are funding the Russian war machine to the tune of 700 million euros every single day. You know we've experienced you know unprecedented sanctions um, of the Russian regime for you know its aggression in Ukraine, but unfortunately the EU is bankrolling that. You know, and you mentioned nuclear has to be has to be part of the solution. My argument is that nuclear is the most scalable and the most effective deep decarbonization tool that we have. And the data is in we have, as I mentioned, the example of Ontario. We also have this example of Germany, which has spent over 500 billion euros on a mostly wind and solar powered energy transition. Well, you know, the wind didn't blow very well. We had an extreme weather event in Europe last year, which was a wind drought. And coal was the number one source of electricity generation on the German grid, despite a 500 billion euro investment um, in wind and solar. And they're more dependent than ever for natural gas, which is coming from Russia to back up that fleet. Because as we all know, particularly in a place like Germany, uh, you know, the solar panels only producing 10 percent of their total capacity because three months of the year, there's no wind and no sun. Um, So they've made themselves critically dependent, and this is really an opportunity for Canada as a tier one nuclear nation to help uh, the European Union get its energy security back and get itself off of fossil fuels as they plan to do within five years. You know, Canadian uranium Um, offsets the equivalent of one third of our total national emissions every year because we use it in carbon free power plants domestically and around the world. We can dramatically scale that up uh, to assist our European allies to get off of fossil fuels and share our wonderful nuclear technology with our allies so that so that we can avoid these kind of geopolitical disasters like we're seeing in Ukraine.
0: Is, is there any conversation at all going on in Ottawa right now, Doctor, uh, to look at this and, and to and to talk about this as part of the future? I, I know the Prime Minister kind of made passing uh, uh, mention of it yesterday when he was up in British Columbia, and that's good uh, to say yeah. it's on the table. But to what extent? What are the plans? You know, where do you see it fitting into the long term plans here? I, we're not getting any of that information.
1: I, mean, I I am quite optimistic. I think nuclear is an incredibly misunderstood technology. Um, the the industry itself does an absolutely terrible job with communications. Um, last week, I was in Ottawa. I, I'm met with the uh, Conservative caucus um, and had a press conference in West Block where we launched our petition um, to include nuclear within the green bond framework. Um, That was, uh, you know, the top 3% of the 465 petitions put before Parliament in this parliamentary session. Um, And then I went on to meet with Liberal caucus members and even cabinet ministers uh, like Anita Anand, um, our uh, Minister of Defence, over in West Block. And everybody is, you know, very, very engaged with these ideas and very open to them and I think really understands and sees the vital role for nuclear. And especially once they hear the kind of arguments that I'm presenting, I'm seeing a lot of nodding heads. Uh, so I think we're on the verge of a real cultural shift, both within politics. I'm seeing media coverage is really changing a lot. You know, in the early days of covering climate change, we used to always have a climate denier along with a climate scientist to cover these topics. And typically when we cover nuclear energy, there's been a tendency within journalism to tell a balanced story to bring on a anti-nuclear figure. But and I think we're starting to see these people, you know, they're quoting, um, you know, fringe science, Uh, they mimic a lot of the the tactics and strategies you see amongst uh, climate deniers. Um, And they're really de facto fossil fuel lobbyists because whenever a nuclear plant is closed, as we're seeing with Pickering, it's replaced by fossil fuels like natural gas. Because again, nuclear replaces fossil fuel services. Um, So, you know, I I am seeing a real sea change in in Canadian political and media culture. I think we're on the verge of big things and, and we've seen dramatic reversals, as I said, in Europe. Uh, when the rubber meets the road. Unfortunately, it wasn't climate change that motivated that. It was extremely high energy prices and the Russian aggression in Ukraine. Maybe Canada can lead and really show its commitment based on climate, based on energy security, and pursue the evidence-based path that we have in Ontario, where we actually were able to phase out coal and achieve the greatest greenhouse gas reduction measure in in North American history. Um, We need to start building large Can-Dos, we need to start building SMRs, and we need to get going quickly on it.
0: Uh, And I know that it's easy to lay all this at the feet of government because they do have a huge responsibility here. But it's on us, too, isn't it, Doctor? I mean, we have to educate ourselves about this and understand. Uh, I'm I'm sure a lot of the listeners right now are just that they're closing Pickering and they're going to use gas. i like, who made that decision? Uh, You know, in this 21st century, with all the problems we've had with fossil fuels, they decided to go that route and that was the alternative for them. Uh, it, it's on us to, to hold governments accountable. We also have to do it from a, a standpoint of norm, what we're talking about. And I think we've got a lot of work to do there.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, the decision um, around not refurbishing Pickering, um, which would have cost a tiny fraction of the Green Energy Act. Um, We know that we spend over $3 billion per year in the Ontario budget just subsidizing those lucrative contracts that were given to private developers to build wind and solar farms that really added almost zero decarbonization value um, to an already very, very clean grid that's mostly hydro and, and nuclear. We can. It's not too late. We can still refurbish Pickering. Um, it's not. It doesn't cost nothing. But it would still be, um, you know, the the second cheapest source of electricity. You know, the added rider that would have to go on. You know, the ratepayer bill and be an extra, you know, cent and a half per kilowatt hour. Um, but that would guarantee us another forty years of chief carbon-free nuclear energy and it's something that we're geared up and we know how to do um and again it's a supply chain that's all captured within Ontario um you know Cambridge is building the the, the steam generators right, doctor, you're, and, and you're the starting other to break. equipment
0: we'll have to break it off here now anyway we're, we're a little sure. tight for time very informative thank you so much for this uh keep doing what you're doing and uh, we'll stay in touch and hopefully uh some good news coming from the government on this thanks so much again doctor
1: it's a pleasure thank you for having me on
0: Dr. Chris Kiefer, of course, from the uh, Canadians for Nuclear Energy. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.